Hi, everybody. My name is Grant Fishbook. I'm the lead teaching pastor at Christ the King Bellingham. And I just want to thank you for accessing our latest message online. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to say that one of the things we value the most at Christ the King is biblical community. And so if you're watching this uh, in our area, we'd love to invite you to come and join us on any weekend at one of our five campuses. If you're watching somewhere around the world or somewhere else in the country, we just want to encourage you to make sure that this is not a substitute for your attendance or your connection at a local church. And we really want you to find a family where you can grow, where you can give and where you can receive as well. So we're continuing our series called Taboo 2. Taboo 2 is really an opportunity for us to have conversations in church about topics we don't normally talk about in church. So in just a few moments, we're going to walk into the worship center. If you've missed any content up to this point, I'd encourage you to go back in the sermon archive and catch up with us. But let's head into the worship center right now as we continue our series, Taboo 2. Good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here. And let me tell you kind of what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. We have this week uh, of Taboo, then we're going to do two more weeks. We're going to talk about hostility. We're going to talk about universalism. And then on November 11 and 12, we're going to do what is commonly uh, known around Christ the King as an Ask Me Anything weekend, which is when uh, you text in your questions live. This time we're going we're gonna to put them towards these particular topics. And I sit up here with the Bible and, and everybody prays for me. Me and I try not to mess it up really bad, and I, we do it live in real time. Nobody filters anything. We just go for whatever questions come in, and I'd encourage you to be thinking ahead uh, as these topics have come, what can prompt you and what questions you'd like answered, so we'll have a conversation that particular morning. Conversations are always fun for me. I had one with Pastor Todd this past week. We finished a long meeting, very long meeting, and headed for the bathroom simultaneously. We don't do that all the time. That would be weird. Okay, so we walk into the bathroom. I go to one stall. He goes to another stall. And all of a sudden, I hear him say, hey. Just so you know, I don't know about the ladies, but the guys, we have a rule. We don't talk in the bathroom. That's how it works. So he broke the rule, but I'm just like, hey, in return. He said, where are you? Like, I'm confused. I'm in the stall right next to you. Thank you very much. He goes, uh, are you ready? I'm like, so this is a competition now? Like we're, <laughs> all right, game on. And then I heard him say goodbye, and he hung up his telephone because <laughs> he was speaking to my new adopted son, Pastor Lem Yusita. And the moral of the story is, there's some places where multitasking with a phone is just plain wrong, all right? I'm just going to say that. And sometimes conversations just take interesting twists. I had an interesting conversation this past week at Starbucks. Started out great, took a bad turn. Ran into a friend. He doesn't know Jesus, doesn't do church. 
totally cool with that. We walk together. have known each other for a long time. His daughter comes to Christ the King, and she's been telling him about all of the taboo topics that we have been going through. We just started rattling through them. Addiction, divorce, death and dying, suicide, racism. And he talked about how each one of the topics had actually affected his family. And we were doing really, really good until he said, so what are you talking about this week? And I told him, well, we're just going to lighten up a whole bunch and talk about hell. That's great. And the conversation immediately went south, and predictably so. Because what came flowing out was what we normally hear as soon as somebody says the word hell. How do you Christians reconcile this loving God with eternal punishment? How could a loving God send the people that he created to hell? I mean, he said, I'm down with so many parts of Christianity. I actually like Jesus. But as soon as you people start talking about this hell stuff, eh, I'm out. Let's be honest. A lot of people exploring Christianity get hung up on the taboo topic of hell. Why? Well, let's answer that question. Why is it a taboo topic for so many people? I put some, some reasons in your outline. The first one will make sense if you grew up in church. Hell's a taboo topic because hell has been used as a scare tactic for centuries, right? Let's be honest. Growing up, Baptist church, Manitoba, summertime Sunday evening church, which was when the really holy people went to church because, you know, you did it twice in one day. But the goal of Sunday nights was always the same. The preacher pulled out hellfire and brimstone with one goal. He wanted to scare the hell out of people so they could get back on the narrow road to glory. That's what they were looking for. And they'd ask questions. Do you want to spend eternity in the lake of fire? Do you want to burn where the worm does not die? That's actually biblical. Do you want eternal torment for the ages? And we would all go, no, we don't want any of that. And the whole church would get saved every Sunday night over and over and over again. Some people get hung up because the problem with the scare tactic is the motivator is as soon as the fear is gone, people go right back to where they started. Secondly, hell's a taboo topic because it offends our American sensibilities. Let's just be honest. In America, you're not allowed to say anything that would offend my my freedom, my liberty, or my ability to shape my own destiny. You don't get to say that there's a higher power who's going to hold me accountable because I am my higher power. I choose my destiny. I do what I want. and, And you, little preacher man, or God or Jesus, has absolutely no business saying that someday God's going to draw a line. That is simply unacceptable. Hell offends our sensibilities because we have no problem with people being accountable to us. We just don't want to be accountable to anybody. Thirdly, this is a tough one because hell's based on the justice and the judgment side of God. You know, I run into people all the time. I love that Jesus is awesome. I love Jesus. Jesus loves everybody. He hugs everybody. He wears a bathrobe, feathered hair, perfect teeth. I mean, that's Jesus, good shepherd, wonderful counselor. I need a good therapist. Jesus does that for me. Great moral teachings, loves children, feeds people extra lunch. He speaks in these and thous. How cool is that? He's kind and gentle and loving and forgiving and kind and gentle and loving and and awesome. I mean, I love Jesus. I think he's fantastic. Just don't tell me that Jesus has a justice side. Don't tell me that God's going to judge me. Jesus doesn't draw lines for people except for this great big line that includes everybody. Jesus doesn't have limits to grace, or does he? You know, we love the loving side of God. 
But in our heart, we think, you better just stay in your loving lane, Jesus, because I can handle a loving God. It's a judging God, a wrathful God, a justice God. Mm, I don't think so. I think I'll pass. Here's another one, tough one. Fourthly, hell demands that difficult realities be faced. Nobody in this room, including me, likes to think of people that we love and care for facing an eternity without God. We don't like that picture. I don't like that picture. None of us wants to believe that somehow because of their personal choices and decisions that there's not going to be a reunion just because somebody didn't love Jesus. And that's a difficult reality to face to the point where some people just don't want to face it. Can I say that? Let me just say this for all of us. Even in that, facing that difficult reality, here's what I know. God wants peace for you in that. Peace to believe that you can trust him, that he's both loving and just and fair with those who've passed on, but that he also wants to meet us in this moment and give us peace, wisdom, and direction for those of us that are still here. Which is tied to the last objection. Hard to argue this one. Hell's repulsive in its nature and its description. I mean, nobody in the room can deny that the visual pictures of hell from Scripture are troublesome and upsetting. They kind of freak me out. I've been thinking about it all week long. I mean, I listed a few of the word pictures from Scripture that are used to illustrate hell. Matthew 13, the fiery furnace. It's hot. Forever's a long time. God controls the thermostat. That's scary. Weeping and gnashing of teeth from Luke 13. The pain's so intense that people are grinding their teeth in their mouth. If you've ever heard that sound at night from somebody, that's just, ah. Outer darkness, Matthew 25. You're alone, isolated. You're removed from God. Eternal punishment, Matthew 25, means it's forever and ever and the torment doesn't stop. Unquenchable fire in Mark chapter 9 describes that nothing can extinguish the pain or the torment and then it actually kicks it up a notch. In Mark chapter 9, it's salted with fire. So it's not just fire, it's a wound that's got salt on it and that's on fire. That is a disturbing picture. Luke 16, that there is agony in the fire. So it's not this, this momentary spiritual owie, but it's pain, perpetual agony. That's enough to freak out anybody. And it's hard to deny the descriptors because they're actually in the book. So what's the normal human response to something that unsettles us? What's the normal human response in a comfort-driven culture that tells us we're supposed to bypass, downplay, sidestep, and remove any form of suffering, any form of pain? I think the response is normal and, and predictable. You either deny it or you explain it away. So some people actually think this. I don't like the idea of hell, therefore it's not true. Just for logic's sake, it doesn't work. Okay? Just because something is repulsive, it doesn't invalidate its existence. Last week, we walked into some deep water. Racism is repulsive, but that doesn't mean it's not real. It happens every day to people that we know and love right here in our backyard. So we deny it, or we try to make it more palatable. We try to take the edge off. We try to make it nice. We find a loophole. We create an alternative. And that's why there's so many various views on hell. I, I put three common views in your outline today, and I cited the source. I'm going to say this. Just because I cite a source in a church service, it does not mean I endorse, support, or encourage anything else that that particular author wrote, okay? Just so we're clear on that. But when it comes to this stuff... 
I think it was fairly accurate. Here's three views of hell. The first one is eternal torment. Okay? Also called traditionalism. And I wrote these in your outline because they're, they're fairly complex and you can go back and take a look at them. Eternal torment has been the most widely held belief about the nature of hell. According to this view, the unsaved will suffer in hell for eternity. Many who hold this view teach that hell is a place with literal fire that burns but never consumes. Others suggest the fire should be interpreted metaphorically, representing the anguish and separation from God. So this tends to be the traditional view held by biblical literists. The view doesn't sidestep anything. The Bible says what it says, and while that may be uncomfortable for a lot of us, it's what the Bible says, so we have to deal with it. Here's another view. It's called conditional immorality. It's been around for a long time. Also called annihilationism. Try to say that 15 times fast. And it's based on the idea human souls are not inherently immortal. So conditionalists are those who believe in annihilation. They teach that only God is immortal and that human immortality is only possible through a union with Jesus Christ. Thus, those who've rejected Christ will not continue living in any sense. They believe that hell is a place of complete destruction. So I know that I am oversimplifying these for the sake of time, but annihilationists will argue God's love can't stand to punish people forever. So people who reject God are basically punished to the point of nothingness. So you're here, you accept God, you get heaven. If you're here, in this view, you reject God, ultimately nothing. There's another view. Had a resurgence in the last couple of years. The fancy theological name is universal reconciliation. It's also called Christian universalism. And that view actually teaches people in hell can still repent and place their faith in Christ. So unlike the pluralist version of universalism, Christian universalism affirms that Jesus is the only way to God. Adherents to this view believe that God never stops pursuing the lost, even after their judgment. So in theory, everyone can eventually be saved. Now this view takes the perspective that ultimately, everybody's going to get in. There's temporary punishment, but true love wins and everybody's going to get a second chance. Which is interesting because who wouldn't pick that, right? Hundreds of variations on these views. And now everybody, please, please hear me so you don't write me a letter and say, Grant's a heretic, okay? I don't share three views with you to present three options. This is not a multiple choice, okay? Okay? Because honestly, you look at it, who wouldn't choose number three, right? I do some stuff, I get spanked, I slap Jesus a high five on the way into heaven. It's perfect. Who wouldn't go that direction. This is not a multiple choice quiz based on our opinions and preferences because I want to remind you of something. The reason all this stuff shows up is because we try to make hell a little bit more palatable and nice so you can swallow it with a spoonful of sugar. This is actually a question of authority. Am I willing to face the topic of hell from a biblical perspective or am I going to be one of those people who takes uncomfortable stuff and I just move it around enough so that I can make it work for me? And I'll be honest with you, there's lots of parts of the Bible that I don't like, but I've got to make a choice. Am I the highest power in my life? Am I only under my own authority, which is really scary considering my track record? Or is God the ultimate authority in my life? And am I willing to say, I will subject myself to the holy word of God when I like it and when I don't? Because it's my authority. So like it or don't like it, let's at least know what God has to say about the taboo topic of hell. Okay, you ready? 
Here it comes. Jesus taught that hell is real. I hear people say this all the time. I love Jesus. I just don't like blank. And the blank could be church or religion or dogma or hypocrisy or, or, or stuff that came out of a bad experience that they once had with a follower of Jesus. So they love, they love Jesus. It's just anything attached to that is not cool. Especially none of that hell stuff. My friend Mark Clark pastors a rapidly growing church up in Surrey. It's called Village Church. I love Mark because Mark loves Canada. I still love Canada because it's a part of my history. And Mark is doing an incredible job at the Village Church in Surrey. He's doing a series right now called The Problem of God. He wrote a book called The Problem of God. You want a good read? You should read Mark's book. It's absolutely fantastic. A few weeks ago, he preached on the problem of hell. His message was fantastic. And in his message, he talked about an interview that he watched uh, with Deepak Chopra. So Deepak Chopra is a popular New Age teacher. In the interview, Chopra basically said, you know, Christians get most of this right. They get most of it right, but here's what they should really do. They should limit themselves to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Leave all that hell stuff out of it. Here's a problem with that. I'd like you to listen to Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, it basically means you idiot, okay, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Same sermon, four verses later. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here's the issue. You can't just focus on Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and ignore hell because Jesus teaches of the reality of hell in the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense? It's there. Multiple places in Scripture. Jesus talks about this place called hell, and it's uncomfortable, but it's true. Now, what's the initial reaction? Some people say, well, if I'm uncomfortable with it, I need to either deny it. Hell's not real, Grant. Come on. Or make it easier. The way we make it easier is people just say, you know, the Bible's using descriptors. They're just metaphors. It's not real flames or real pain. It's just kind of a, it's just kind of a thing, right? Now, I have to admit, there are different genres in Scripture. One of them is apocalyptic literature, where God uses human words to try and describe a part of his character or his appearance. That's true. That's in Scripture all along. And the reason that's there is because human words struggle to describe the appearance of God. You can't describe Him with human words. Sometimes symbols are used to describe heaven using human descriptors. But the reality is this, is trying to describe a reality that we can't even wrap our head around. Here's what people miss. Every symbol in Scripture points to a greater reality, not a lesser one. A greater reality, not a lesser one. So let me steal this from my friend Mark because his illustration is fantastic. 
If you are one of those people who has a green box in your front yard, or front, front yard right? It, it, it's a metal box, and, and it sits there, and the, and the city put it there. And on the side of it is a sticker, and the sticker is a symbol. There's a red guy, little red guy, who looks like he's falling backwards, and there's a lightning bolt over top of him. And it's a warning, right? The symbol is, don't take the lid off the green box and stick your hands into the wires, especially on a damp day, because you're going to get zapped. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. The symbol, the symbol is a warning for a greater reality, because let me ask you a question. Which one would be worse, looking at the picture or actually getting zapped? Makes sense, right? This is a small piece of tungsten. I wear it on my finger. It's just a piece of jewelry. It's a symbol, but it's not a symbol to a lesser reality. It's a symbol to a greater reality. It's a symbol to a 29-year love story. It's a symbol of loving someone in weakness and strength, loving them in sickness and in health. It's a picture that points to a greater reality. And you could say, no, that's it, Grant. It's just a piece of jewelry. I say, no, it's not, because it's connected to a story that I'm personally involved in and have been investing in for almost 30 years. Do you get that picture? The language used to describe hell points to a greater reality that Jesus is warning all of humanity about, that God actually has a justice side. Now, this is amazing to me. In our country, in our culture, we're repulsed by the idea that Jesus has a justice side that could possibly result in hell. In other parts of the world, it's completely opposite. When I travel around the world and I meet people who live in cultures where violence is normal, where evil is prevalent, where family members have been killed and slaughtered, in acts of genocide, when I talk to those people, they cannot believe the American mindset. They struggle to comprehend. How in the world can you people worship a God without a justice side? Do we get that? They want to know that God will hold evil people accountable, that God has a line, that God's going to punish evil. They're thankful for God's grace, but they want to know that God is going to hold accountable those people who showed up and murdered the women and children in their village. You see, they know something that I think we forget. Love without justice is enablement. Parents, try loving your kids without justice. Some of you are actually doing that. How's that going for you? You know what you're doing? You're raising a little anarchist is what you're doing. Because there's no boundaries, right? There's no rules. There's no consequences. And God says, look, I'm the perfect parent, so you need to know something. I absolutely love you, but I need justice to underscore that love. Otherwise, I'm just enabling you to do whatever you want to. God loves with perfect justice. Let's keep going. Jesus not only taught in the reality of hell all through the New Testament, but here's an interesting piece. Jesus taught that hell was not intended for humans. Matthew 25, the original intent for hell was not for people, it was for Satan and his angels, the original rebels. Matthew 25, Jesus is telling this incredible story about separating sheep and goats. I preached a message on here a long time. It's an amazing story. Basically, what Jesus is confronting people with is at the end of time, you can say you knew me because you checked a bunch of boxes, but you didn't really know me. 
You didn't know my heart. You didn't understand my heart for the least of these. So you got caught in religion and you completely neglected relationship. And God is separating people out. And at the end of the story, Jesus says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So bottom line, here's the deal. No person was ever supposed to go to hell. That spot was reserved as a place of punishment for the original rebels against God. So some of you are just like, well, if that it wasn't what hell is for, then what is it for? Why is it there? Why did God even open up this possibility? And here it comes. This is the toughest thing of all, but it's the most important thing. If you don't get anything else today, please take this with you. It's so unbelievably important that we understand this. Hell is not assigned. Hell is chosen. God doesn't choose hell for anyone, but you can choose hell for yourself. Now, the normal response is this. Why in the world would I choose that? That's a good question. Why would you choose that? Why would you choose to reject God who in his grace and mercy offers an opportunity to have a relationship with him? This is something that I know. You've heard me say this so many times if you've been here over the last 18 years or so. Every one of us in this room at some point is going to meet Jesus. And we're either going to meet him in his grace or we're going to meet him in his justice. Choose grace. That's his heart. The Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish. Choose Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Don't just do it to avoid hell. Choose it so you can attach yourself to the king of heaven. That's what God wants for all of us. The reality is this though. Some of us, we're just like, no, I don't think so. And in saying that, what we're really exposing is is what I have, what you have, what we've all had at some point. Everybody in this room, we have stubborn and unrepentant hearts. Can we just admit that? Listen to Romans chapter 2 talk about that. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. You should underline that word righteous because it means that it's a right judgment even if you don't like it. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There's the line. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So all of us, we we have stubborn and unrepentant hearts, and Jesus says, I'd like you to come to the altar, we can deal with that. Now I want to be very sensitive, because I understand who's in this precious family that I love so much. Some of you in this room today, you're like, Grant, I don't even need to wait for hell in eternity. My life has been hell and I've been living in a hell ever since I arrived on this planet. And because of that, you struggle to believe in God. You're not, you're not stubborn, you're hurting. Can I say this? That's an even greater reason to choose Jesus. 
Because every time I've been in pain in my life, Jesus doesn't step away because he's repulsed by it. He steps in just a little closer because Jesus understands pain better than all of us. He understands the pain of rejection, the pain of hurt, the pain of sin. He took all of it on himself so that we could be set free. I want you to be careful with a verse from Romans there because when it says God will repay each person according to what they've done, Paul's not talking about doing a bunch of nice stuff so you can balance the scales and get God's approval. The doing he's talking about here is using your free will, your choice to humble yourself before God, ask for his forgiveness, experience his mercy, and not to live your life simply as to avoid hell, but to once again love and serve the king of heaven. It's the beauty of it. I love these powerful words about choice. C.S. Lewis said this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. I have more than just a choice of avoidance. I have a choice to choose God's will that not a single human being should perish. And I have an opportunity to step in his direction today. C.S. Lewis also said this, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I have a choice every day to not rebel against God, to not lock myself away for eternity, but instead to choose freedom, to be free of that fear, to be free of, of, of all of those fear tactics, but to pursue Jesus because choosing Him is the best life possible here on earth. Here's one more. One of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton. Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. You get to choose and God will honor your decision. Choose Jesus. Maybe that's all I should have said this morning. Two words, just choose Jesus. You know, for each of us, when it comes to hell, we've got a choice. We have a choice. And, and the thing that I love about all of these topics is that when you take the topic and you put it up, there's a mirror reflection of the topic and the beauty, the antithesis of each of the topics that we've talked about is always Jesus. Because you need to know this. There's an answer for hell. It's the king of life. There's an answer. You want to take hell off the table? You choose Jesus. You come to the cross. You humble yourself. You ask for forgiveness. You live your life following him for the rest of your days. In that moment, hell, hell's a side issue. Not even relevant in the face of who Jesus is. If Jesus is the answer to the reality of hell, it means something. It means the darkness of hell doesn't like the king of light. 
And it allows me to be able to stand here today, not under my authority, but under the authority of Jesus, and to be able to tell you with conviction, Jesus is greater than death. Jesus is creator than, uh, greater than hell. Jesus is greater than darkness. Jesus is greater than separation. Jesus is greater because he is the king of light. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. When light and darkness have a conflict with each other, I have never seen the darkness win. I walk into a dark room, I flip on the light, darkness disappears. Years ago, I walked into a broken place in my life, cried out to Jesus. The king of light showed up and the darkness started to tremble. And it reverberated all the way from earth straight into the center of hell. And the devil stood up and took notice, just like, what in the world is happening? The king of life is reclaiming one of his own. That's what's going on. And hell shakes every single time that happens. So here's what we're going to do. Instead of sitting here wrapped in fear, we're going to focus on the name of Jesus to close our service today. In a few moments, the band is going to come out and, and Andy and Catherine are going to sing over top of us. And I want you to focus your attention on the center screen. I want you to immerse yourself in the lyrics of what it is that we're going to hear. Because we're not going to finish and allow this message to be wrapped up with hell having the last word. We're going to allow the king of life, the king of light to have the last word. Because there's power in that name. Would you pray with me as they prepare to come? Father God. God, thank you that we can approach the throne boldly and humbly. God, we come in this moment right now and we acknowledge there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So God, I pray for those who have struggled with this difficult truth. God, I pray that we would all choose to trust you right now. Lord, for those in the room who have never reached for the hand of God and begun a relationship with him, God, I pray that they would know that by reaching to Jesus right now in this moment, that hell gets taken off the table, perfect love casts out all fear, and that they can live under the authority and accountability of the King of Heaven. So God, for those who don't know, I pray right now they would humble themselves. And Lord, for those of us who have started this journey maybe a little while ago, maybe a long time ago. God, I pray in this moment we would wrap ourselves in the comfort of the name of Jesus knowing that it's His name that makes our darkness tremble. God, may the reality of a difficult truth push us towards You and You alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us today online. I want to give you an opportunity again to really get connected into community. And so if you're in Whatcom County, we'd love to have you join us at one of our five campuses. If you're not in Whatcom County, we really want to encourage it again to get plugged into a local church. To find out more about Christ the King or to give online or to submit a prayer request, I want to encourage you to go to ctk.church. Once again, thank you for joining us.